I know that's kind of a taboo. Most of you have been in churches where, you know, they just tell story after story after story and they never get back to the scriptures. I promise you this will be different. Um, But I'm gonna challenge your thinking because I'm gonna take a text that most of us have kind of accepted on a certain level and uh, I'm gonna suggest to you that probably 60 or 70% of what we understand about this text is wrong. And so you're gonna hear some new stuff this morning as we think about this, but the reason for that as we deal with this whole issue of role of men and women in the church and equality is that if you don't understand the text properly, it's really hard to draw principles from it. And I want to, uh, and I know that some of you understand this a little bit because in the text that we're looking at, there's all kinds of these weird questions that come up and they always go unresolved, but we just sort of accept that we have to live with them. And if you know me, when it comes to having these anomalies in the scripture, I go very OCD and I work and pray and I work and study and pray and I do it some more because I have this ferocious appetite to uh, not to create stuff that isn't there, but to understand what is it that God's saying. And so I want to uh, invite you to uh, this journey this morning. I, I'll just tell you, in story time, I'm gonna make some stuff up. Okay? In story time, I'm gonna make stuff up, and then I'm gonna leave it to you to decide how accurate it is. Now that might sound like, what is this guy gone off the deep end? What's he talking about? But you'll see, I invite you to hang in there as we move through it. Our study has sort of originated a little bit from Galatians 3.28, where the whole idea of there's no distinctions uh, in, in terms of Jew and Greek, slave or free, or male or female, uh, this becomes kind of the hallmark cornerstone text about dealing with the issue of equality in the New Testament. But as I mentioned last time, to me the beginning part is starting in Genesis to see what God created and what it looks like in that context. Last week we dealt with Genesis chapter one and two dealing with the nature of God's creation and what was equal and what's different in terms of men and women. And this week we're going to look at Genesis chapter three, one through seven. Uh, So let me begin just by reading it for you and having you at least get your minds bathed in in the scripture and then we'll work from there. Now the serpent was more crafty or shrewd than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, I, was, I always want to improvise. Look, sweetie, you're not going to die. That's, that's, and I'm going to sort of put flesh and blood to these conversations just so that we get it out of fairy tale land and get it down to the reality of what we think actually happens. So he's going, hey, look, you're not going to die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths or coverings. Now at the heart of this, the first thing I wanna do is run through the basic elements of the narrative. There are six basic components of what happens here. But as we go through it, and I recognize those, I also want to acknowledge all the issues that come up that never get resolved. 
Uh, believe me, I've read enough commentaries on this text to choke a bull elephant, and there's not very little new under the sun in terms of understanding this, but I'll explain to you in a minute. The first one is that Adam and Eve are at the center of the garden. That's kind of a given. Verse six says that he was with her, and so he and Eve happened to be down uh, at the center of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Secondly, the serpent engages Eve and challenges God's command by proposing a different truth claim about eating the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, it's a, it, there's, at this point, you start getting questions in your mind. And the first question that comes to mind uh, literally surfaces about this whole issue with uh, Eve talking to the serpent. Uh, Richard Hess, in his book uh, from Gordon Fee as a contributor, says this, the snake who initiates the dialogue approaches the woman. Why not the man? Is the evidence of the snake's subversion of God's intended hierarchy, or is this what he's doing? Shouldn't the serpent have given preference or deference to the man before addressing the woman? I mean, it's one of the discussions in equality. Why isn't he talking to, well, to me it's, yeah, I get the question, but kind of the point to me is, if you're gonna mess people up, you divide and conquer, is kind of the idea, but that's the question that we have to deal with, is why is the serpent talking to the woman rather than to the man? The third component of this is that the woman then responds to the serpent by saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, of course, this raises a bit of a concern, um, and the concern comes, again, I'm gonna borrow from Richard Hess just so that I don't get too long-winded about it, is she, the woman, Eve, also adopts the snake's description of the Lord God, which I'll go into in a minute simply describing him as God, and most significantly, she adds to the ban on eating in the tree of the knowledge, uh, the tree of knowledge, a prohibition, uh, even touching it, lest you die. So in other words, if you look at God's command back in chapter two, God didn't say you couldn't touch it, he just said, don't eat of it. So the inevitable result here is, he says, these slight alteration to God's remarks suggest that the woman has already moved slightly away from God toward the serpent's attitude. Now, just so that I can set the stage and make you curious, I'm gonna disagree with him. And I'll show you why later when we take a look at it. Uh, I'm gonna say I think Eve sometimes gets a bad rap because she gets stereotyped before we even get into the discussion. And so for you women, you might go, oh, that's cool. Guys are going like, what are you talking about? Like, I thought she was at fault at this and we'll sort of explore that. The fourth element is this, and this is kind of the elephant in the room Eve does not invite Adam into the discussion, nor does Adam engage the conversation, even though he's with her. Now, if there's anything irritating about this text, this is it. I mean, I don't know how many times you've read this, but there's nothing more irritating than to think that Adam is there, she's going through this long theological debate and, and ethical discussion with the serpent, and Adam, I don't know what he's doing, he's over here on the rock watching TV or something, I thought this kind of total indifferent behavior came after the fall, not beforehand. But it drives me nuts to read this text and, and this dude isn't helping. Now maybe he tried to help and she did the hand thing, like, uh, hand, I got it. I'm supposed to be your helper, don't bother me, I got this handle. I don't know, but everything about this is irritating to me. And it becomes one of those things like, what are they doing? 
I mean, the other part of this is, uh, in terms of Eve, is that, um, and, and Richard Hess captures this a little bit, the passive attitude of the man, in contrast to the woman, is evident in the initial verbs and their subjects. The fact that he is with her suggests, that harmonious relation, or suggests the harmonious relationship that these partners had uh, for which they were both created. And it implies that the man knew what had happened in the preceding verses and thus fully shared in the guilt. In order for this to suggest that man's leadership over the woman was here subverted, it is necessary to ask who gave him that leadership. And again, with all due respect, and humbly, I'm gonna totally disagree with him. Now, hopefully, I'm getting your attention. I wanna suggest to you that most of what we understand about this passage is wrong. And I'm going to uh, try to demonstrate that to you as we work through it a little bit. Number five, Eve concludes that the fruit is good for food, a delight to the eyes, and can make one wise, so she goes and eats it and hands it to Adam, and they both eat it. Now, talk about persuasive. I mean, they don't even seem to have a conversation here. She gets the fruit, hands it to him, and he just sucks it down. It's kind of like, really? Like, what's the matter with him? Well, women are pretty persuasive, so, I mean, he just jumps right in. But there's something about that that just says, really? This happened this quickly? What's going on here? And then number six, both Adam and Eve have their eyes open, run from the presence of the Lord, and God made coverings for themselves. Now, that's the traditional way we think about this particular text, and I perfectly get that because that's what the text says. So here's my proposal for you, and then we're going to work back through it. Uh, we're going to watch a movie trailer, and uh, I'm, we're going to watch it, and it's for kids, so if there's any kids around anywhere, don't see too many young kids, but you know, if you're a kid at heart, you'll enjoy this. Uh, we've got permission to use this, so it's not like we're dragging anything out from that we shouldn't be. But I, I want you to watch this video. It's exactly two minutes long because movie trailers are exactly two minutes long, legislated by their own industry. And believe me, it does have a purpose. I haven't totally lost my mind, and I will come back when it's done, and I'll explain why we're watching this particular trailer for this particular message.
Now, you know I've lost my mind, but that's, that's beside the point. Um, I'm just trying to keep you awake for the whole message. That's all I'm doing. But anyway, one of the things that I want to suggest to you is that when you look at a movie trailer, you have to realize that that's not the movie. It's two minutes long. Most movies are two to three hours. So what's the point of a trailer? Well, a trailer is intended to give you some of the high and low and crisis moments of a movie so that you'll come away going, I gotta go see that. And if your kids see it, that's what you're gonna end up doing, right? Because they're gonna go, wow, I gotta go see that. But But if you know what a movie trailer is, you also know that they are brief snapshots of different events in the movie, and frankly, if you've studied them, they're not even necessarily in the right order, in the right sequence. They'll they'll pull stuff all over the place just to sort of raise the issues of what's going on. You get sort of a general idea, but they don't want to give anything away. Now, the reason why I say that is, actually, this would have been a good movie trailer for Genesis 3, because I think the dogs and animals could have had more common sense than Adam and Eve. They desperately needed to be rescued, and they could have easily used their help. I'm just telling you, when I see sort of the... The, the mindless incompetence that it seems that Eve just sort of hurdles into this and the complete apathy and indifference of Adam, you gotta wonder, do they know what's going on at all? But, but what I wanna propose to you is to think about Genesis 3, 1 through 7 like a movie trailer, not the movie. Because I can guarantee you, by the time we finish looking at this, I can guarantee you there's things going on in this text that isn't explicitly stated. And even though I'm gonna make things up in a sense to help you get a sense of that, the key is how do we understand the text? And I want you to begin to think about it in the sense of, okay, Brad, if this is a movie trailer, then it's showing you some key high and low moments, but some of it's compressed, some of it's put together and sort of mushed together, and it's hard to figure out the sequence or exactly the storyline just by reading these verses. Now, if you're ready for that, you'll need to buckle up because this is gonna go quickly if we're gonna get through it all. Here's sort of the spoiler if you wanna have some sense of what's going on. I believe there's three distinct scenes going on in these verses. The first scene is verses one through five where Eve is having this discussion with the serpent. It is intense, it is theological, there's an ethical discussion, there's ontology, there's who is God, What is he like? Can we trust his word? There's an enormous amount of stuff that's going on in here, and the serpent comes along and uh, is going to try to mess with Eve to get her to reconsider what God is doing. Scene two is really the first part of uh, 6a, that it says, when Eve saw and began to understand certain things, then she gets certain conclusions. And the first part is where she's confronted with these conflicting truth claims, but then there's a time she has to reconcile what she's going to believe. And then the third part is where she convinces Adam to abandon God's command and do what she wants him to do. If you don't see these scenes, if you don't sort of see it like a trailer, I think we've continually misunderstood what's going on, and I'll offer it to you, and literally, I'll humbly offer it to you as a way to think about this text so that we understand exactly what's going on. So having said that, let's go back and 
I'm just going to show you the text. We won't go over it again. But one through five is scene one. Uh, the serpent's the one who engages Eve. And I want to make four observations about this section that helps us understand kind of the movement of the movie uh, rather than just the trailer. The first uh, observation that I want to make is the absence of the presence of the Lord. Now, if you have your Bibles or are looking at them, you will, I'm not putting the full text up there. In verse one and verse eight, there are two, refer- two names that are referred to God. One is God, which is Elohim. It's used in chapter one to talk about the omnipotent, sovereign, transcendent creator who brought everything into existence. But the other name that's used there is the word Lord. And it's, it's a capitalized Lord. It's actually God's personal name. For instance, if you go to Exodus chapter three and you see God appearing to Moses, this is the name that God reveals himself. Now, some of our Jewish friends are gonna have to pardon me for a minute, but this is the word we use for Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, Jews would not try to pronounce this personal name of God, they would refer to him as Adonai. But this is in, in Exodus three, Moses had a very distinct feeling of the very presence of God. He was in the burning bush, even though the bush wasn't burning, but he wasn't just some God creator idea that he thought about. God made his presence felt very personally. In Genesis chapter three, when you go to verse eight, it's a fascinating statement, and it's after their decision, but listen to it. They, being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the Uh, garden in the cool of the day. Well, I didn't know God had feet or anything else, but the expression is meant to say that God is drawing close to them and trying to make his presence felt and and appreciated by them. But then you'll notice immediately that it says, um, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And so the word Lord, to me, is God's personal name and it talks about his presence. Now when the serpent comes and begins the conversation, he drops God's personal name and he simply refers to God as Elohim. And Eve kind of works on that. She doesn't, she just continues that dialogue so they're talking about the almighty transcendent creator but they've left off God's personal name. Now I think there's lots of reasons for this but I think that the primary reason is that it's saying that God isn't present with them in this discussion. He's obviously present in the giant theological, omnipresent sense of God, but he's not there in terms of fellowship, in sense of interacting and what's going on. And so what's really unsettling about this in terms of looking at Eve's interaction with the serpent is that nowhere in this discussion, although I think she could have, is she could have called a timeout and said, hey, Yahweh, would you mind coming over here and being present to help me deal with this? But she never does that. She never asks for help. There's no record anywhere that Eve asks God for help in this. But I suspect, like anything, that if she had called a timeout and God came over and made his presence very real, the conversation would have ended like in two seconds flat because all of a sudden his presence would remind Eve of the overwhelming reality of what he commanded, and the serpent probably would have fled. So the first observation is God is not present in this discussion. He's not involved, he's not engaged, and that's not God's fault, that's because Eve is having this discussion with the serpent between them. The second is that the serpent challenges God's truth claim. 
Now, a truth claim is any claim that, that proposes to be true, and God's truth claim is that you're not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will die. That's the claim, that, that's what God commanded. But the idea here is, what is it that God really did say? Now, you notice the phrase, did God, I like the way ESV does it, did God actually say, and then, of course, he says that you're not to eat of any tree. He's forcing Eve to correct him, and I think he's doing that on purpose. But the idea is, did God actually say this? Now, I think it's bigger than just correcting the command. If you go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and you try to look for what God actually said, you will notice that when in Genesis 1, it deals with big picture. He created Adam and Eve, male and female, he created them, and then he blessed them, and then he gave them the big mission statement. Bear fruit, multiply, subdue the earth, and exercise dominion. And so that's the big picture. But when you get to chapter 2, something changes. We've talked about last week that God created Adam first, He spent time, I believe, with on-the-job training, teaching Adam what it means to subdue the earth, so he put him in the garden and taught him how to cultivate and discover the resources. And then he brought the animals to him in conjunction with finding a partner that was suited for him, and he allowed him to name the animals. And I think God could have done it, but he didn't. He was taking the role of a helper, and he was empowering Adam to take the responsibility and ownership of I gotta own this, I I gotta take some action here. But you'll notice in that discussion that there's no helper suited for God and then God brings Eve to him. But what's really interesting about that is that the only time you find in Genesis one and two where God explicitly says don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is only when he's, after he's created Adam. We don't have it recorded anywhere that he said that to both of them. Now why is that important? Well, I believe what happens is one of the first responsibilities that Adam had when God brought Eve to him is to take her down to the middle of the garden and say, listen, we'll we'll talk about subduing and multiplying, all that kind of stuff, but there's one thing you really need to know. You're getting the point that I'm improvising here, right? You get that part? So he takes her down to the middle of the garden and he shows her the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I think Eve probably would have stood there absolutely awestruck because I think these are the first and second wonders of the world. I think these are majestic, amazing trees that there's nothing compares to them in the entire garden. The reason I say that is that if you think about the tree of life, you'll discover in Revelation chapter 22, it describes this tree and it says that this particular tree Uh, it it talks about a throne and this living crystal clear water coming from the throne of God and and it flows down the street and on either side is the tree of life and that it bears 12 kinds of fruit and it bears them every month. Now I don't know if you get apples one month and oranges the next month and whatever, but this thing is an absolute fruit producing kind of tree and it also tells us that its leaves are used for the healing of the nations. This is no ordinary tree, this isn't like a Christmas tree. This thing is the most staggering wonder of the world and I think she would have been awestruck by it. But the other side of it is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I think Adam would have said, all right, this is a pretty amazing tree too, but I wanna tell you something. God's told us that we can eat of any tree and the fruit of any of the trees in the garden except this one because if we eat of this one, we're gonna die. 
So here's what I've done, and here's what I want, we want, need to do. We need to make sure we don't go near that thing or touch it because that's the safest way not to violate God's command. You good with that? Sure, I'm good with that, Eve says. We can work with that. So the idea of when the serpent comes along and tells Eve this thing like, did God really say that you're not to eat of any of the tree, she first of all defends God's command. Now I'm gonna suggest to you there's a first and second response in this dialogue. I think there's more going on than just the one statement. It doesn't really matter, it doesn't change the text, I'm just suggesting you for the sake of the movie that there's more going on here than just one statement. And so she comes back against the serpent and says, look, God said we could eat of any of the tree here, of all these trees except that one right there, and God said, you shall not eat of that or you will die. And so the serpent then goes, really? So did God really actually say that? Well, Adam took me down and explained to me what God said. Oh, so you didn't actually hear God say that. And she goes, well, wait a minute, what are you implying? Well, God told Adam what the command was. Hang on, are you trying to imply that Adam lied to me? No, 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 not at all, says the serpent. But God commanded Adam to do this, and, and he, you're the respons- he was responsible to tell you about it, but how do you know that he's talked about all that that means? Well, wait a minute, dude, you slippery little slime thing. God, Adam, told, would be, Adam wouldn't deceive me. We went down, and he told me we can eat of all the trees, and he told us if we eat that tree, we're going to die, and we're not even going to touch it. I think she gets a little feisty with him. And the whole idea of this, this sense that she's adding to God's word so she's off kilter, I don't think is the reality. I think what she's saying is that she is saying our personal conviction is not only are we not going to eat it, but we're not even going to go near it and touch it. Because that's what our resolve is. We want to do what God wants. And for you to suggest that anything else is not what we're doing. So she, I think, in the first statement, defends God's command. I think the dialogue goes on where then she is forced to, to kind of push back on him a little bit and say, look, we're not only going to eat it, but we're not even going to touch it. So we have God's command, and now we have the serpent's commentary. Kind of like what pastors and teachers do, right? Here's what God's word says. Here's what God's word means. And so he's throwing doubt in Eve's mind about, well, okay, I actually didn't hear God say this to me personally. Adam did it. Did he tell me everything? I don't know. Well, I better should go and ask Adam what he really meant by this. Although the serpent's probably going, well, listen, I wouldn't bring this up with him because if you thought I was implying that he lied, he might get the same thing. That's probably not good for your relationship. Yeah, I'm making it up, all right? But think of where this goes. So then what happens is that she not only defends God's command, but then she defends their conviction. And, and then the fourth observation that I want to make here is that I am completely convinced that Adam is nowhere in the neighborhood. Now, I know you're going, Brad, you're reasonably smart. The text says that he was with her. 
Here's what I think happened. I think Adam and Eve got up in the morning. Adam says, you know what? I'm feeling like a round of golf, and I'm going to go down to the Euphrates Country Club, and I'm going to do 18 holes. I'll be back in about five or six hours. She goes, why is it going to take you five or six hours? Well, I'm playing against myself. (laughs) Whatever. And I'll probably hit mulligans. And I want to propose to you, and I'm obviously making up. I think he's off doing his own thing, and he's on, by the time Eve goes down by herself to the garden, not only is God not present, but I don't think Adam is present either. It makes perfect sense. It's very difficult for me to conceive that he is with her, sitting on a rock, she's having this discussion, the question's the very commandment of God, and he won't do a thing. And she doesn't ask for help. That just... For me, is inconceivable. But if he's not there and she's struggling this with herself, the, the, then it, may, it seems to make more sense in terms of what progresses from here. And so what happens then is that then the serpent lobs this last statement to her as she's trying to figure this thing out. She's faced with a couple of uh, truth claims and then the serpent says this, look, sweetie, you're not going to die, for God knows, now he's not saying, in my opinion, he flips it right over and says, God knows that when you eat of this, you're going to become more like God, and you're going to have knowledge that you don't have now, and you're going to be better equipped to know the difference between good and evil because you actually eat of the tree. And here ends scene two. I don't think God's there. I don't think Adam's there. I think the serpent takes off and all of a sudden Eve is sitting there by herself going, what? Now, if you think I'm completely making this up, let me also uh, suggest to you that in Hebrew grammar, verse six starts with what they call it's, you won't understand it, but it's a vav consecutive. It's basically a grammatical device that's indicating there's a sequence of events that are about to unfold. Now, I noticed one commentator, uh, his name is Gordon Henham, who says uh, basically that this suggests a rapid ascent of events that are going to take place. Well, I went back and actually reviewed my Hebrew grammar. What it indicates is a sequence. It doesn't tell you how fast they're going to happen. And I think that makes a difference. The reason he says it happens fast is because we all assume Adam is sitting right there being as worthless as he is and so she just walks over, grabs the fruit, hands it to him and he just wolfs it down like it's no big deal. I think what happens is Eve is left there and this is where scene three starts in verse six. She's left there by herself and God's not present. Adam's on the back nine on the 15th hole and the serpent disappears and she's left here going, Okay, now wait a minute. Here's God's command, don't eat or you'll die. The serpent's commentary, well, yeah, I guess he's right. I didn't actually hear God's command personally. Adam told me. Did he tell me everything I needed to know? I don't know, but man, if we don't die, then what happens? Now, if I was a squirrel sitting on a branch about 50 yards away, I'd see her sitting down. Here's the movie part, right? Okay. She's sitting down on the rock that we suppose Moses was sitting on watching TV or being completely worthless. And she's starting to kind of stress about this. 
It's like, how do I resolve God's command with this commentary and our personal convictions? Like, we've made a conviction, we're not gonna go near or touch it, but if what he says is true and it just helps us understand God's command better, is there really a need to do that? So the squirrel's watching Eve and she gets up and walks around, she's fidgeting, and I'm gonna, here's what I'm gonna propose. For the next week, Every morning, Eve gets up and she goes down to the middle of the garden where the tree of life and the tree of the, garden, uh, the, knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. She sits on the rock and she's rocking back and forth trying to figure this out because she's dealing with two different truth claims. Now, she could ask Adam, but she doesn't want to imply to him that he might be lying or not telling the truth, so she's gonna be a helper and figure this out on her own. Now, if you're the squirrel, every once in a while, uh, on the second day, Eve stands up and she's looking at the tree like she sees something. And so the squirrel's kind of looking at the tree going, what's she looking at? I don't know, it just looks like a tree. But you look at her and she's like, she's looking at something. And then all of a sudden, she goes around the tree and takes off into the forest. And she's gone for a couple of hours and she comes back to the tree and she starts sitting on the rock and thinking again and then she takes off again. And she does this for three or four days and then she, you find her sitting at the rock by the tree, and on the sixth day, or the fifth day, whatever, make up your own day, all of a sudden they look and she stands up and puts her hands in the air like she's had an epiphany and she goes, I get it. I know what this is about. Now how do I know she does that? Well, the word when it's in verse six that says when the woman saw, the word saw means to come to an understanding, but it also means to spy, to inspect, to investigate. And I think Eve, when she was fighting these two truth claims, decided to do her own research. And at the end of that process, when she gets to the end of this time, whatever length of time it is, then I think she comes to these three conclusions in her mind. The tree was good for food, the tree was a delight to her eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, where did she get that? Well, she has God's command, but now she's got all this commentary from the serpent. Man, she's got their own personal convictions not to go near it or touch it, but she comes up with this alternative. So she goes, all right, you know what I gotta do now? I gotta go tell somebody about my research because I'm really jazzed about what I discovered. I discovered this new truth, this, this new reality, and I understand God's command even better than I did. I gotta tell somebody, oh, he's out playing golf on the back nine. But that's okay. She starts saying, all right, now I'm going to go talk to Adam and tomorrow we're gonna come down and have a picnic because we're gonna have a discussion. So she goes and talks to Adam, but here's, a, here's some of the problems. The problem that I have with her seeing, having the discussion with a serpent, I think it'd be very difficult for suddenly her just to have this total epiphany and she comes to these three conclusions 10 seconds after the discussion. I actually don't think Adam's there, but even if he was, she goes over and picks fruit and says, here, eat it, and he's gonna be convinced just because she offers it to him? I'm not buying that either. She struggled through this to try to reconcile how to get to this point. So then she says, all right, Adam, I want to go for a picnic and I want to 
go down to the middle of the garden. So they go down there the next day and she picks a very particular time because in her research she discovered something. And she says, Adam, I want to talk about God's command. And he goes like, well, what do you want to talk about? She says, well, the first thing I want to tell you is that 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 fruit on that tree is good for food. And he stands up and says, don't you dare tell me that you ate from the fruit of that tree. And she she goes, no, 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 I haven't gone near to touch it. Well, then how do you really know that it's good for food? How'd you come up with that? Did you just sort of pull that out of your mind? Like, how do you suddenly come to that conclusion? And she says, look, past the tree of life, over on the other side of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what do you see? Oh, well, there's deer eating the fruit off the lower limbs of that tree. Yeah, and I've been coming down every week, and I've seen all kinds of animals on that tree eating it. And I've even gone off into the woods to follow some of those animals, and I can't find a dead animal anywhere. I can't even find an animal that's been sick. And I've been doing this all week, and I, I know that food, that fruit is good for food. I'm not just making this up. How do I know she's doing this? Well, she's going to have to convince Adam, who has a core belief that they should obey God, and she has to, frankly, be as shrewd as the serpent was if she's going to convince him of this newfound truth. She can't just make it up or he'll blow her off. I mean, if she comes and says, uh, I've been talking to the serpent, and he's going to go, you've been seeing who? It's a bit of a trap game, but I think she's doing her research. That's what the, when she, it says that she saw this, I think she's inspecting and examining this and doing her own research. So she comes back, and she's saying, listen, I'm not making this up. I've seen animals eating the fruit of that, and I can't find a dead animal anywhere. So I know that it won't kill us. And why would God create this magnificent tree that's kind of comparable to the tree of life and then waste it by not allowing us to use it? Didn't he tell us we're supposed to subdue the earth and extract and discover all the reasons? Why would he waste this tree? In fact, I think it's our responsibility to to find out how we can best utilize this tree. That's what God told us to do. And, And the third idea here that I want you to notice is that I know this tree can make us wise. Didn't God tell you, and you told me, that this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah. Well, what we're going to do is if we eat it, it's not that we're doing evil, we're gaining knowledge to help us become more like God, so we'll have better wisdom to know what good is and what evil is, and we can avoid it. How am I doing? Because she's got to convince him to abandon a fundamental core belief that he has on who God is and what he's commanded. If she's not good at this, it's not going anywhere. And after she makes this statement, I think she walks over and grabs the fruit of the tree, and on the way back to Adam, she starts eating it, and then gets over to him and saying, you know, if you love me, you'll do this for me. I'm making it up, all right? But see, I, I, think, I think this gives us more of the movie of what actually happens. We read the framework of this, and we conclude that Adam was there, and I think that's just wrong. I don't think he was. I think when he, they go on the picnic the next day, whatever after she's done her research, then he's clearly with her, 
And she has this discussion based on the conclusions that she's come to after her research. And so she is very conniving, as it were, as shrewd as the serpent, to actually get Adam to abandon his core belief in what God wants him to do and do what she wants him to do in eating the fruit. To think that he's sitting there and hearing the discussion, pays no attention to it, she finishes the discussion and within 30 seconds she concludes this, grabs the fruit, hands it to him, and he just wolfs it down, just makes no sense to me at all. Now, how do I know that he had this discussion? Well, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, after the fall and God is dealing with Adam, you'll notice that he judges Adam for two things. And they're both connected. But he says, the first thing he says is, because you listened to the voice of your wife. Well, if you read Genesis 3, 1 through 7, there's no recorded conversation they have at all. And yet you have to assume that they had a conversation. And I don't think God's just saying, you know, here's dessert. I'm not buying the idea that that Adam thought he was eating peach cobbler from the tree of life and she was serving him apple fritters from the bakery of the valley of death. This isn't an accident. She talked him into this and I think she did it very persuasively. And so God says, listen, because you listened to your wife and you allowed her to talk you into this and because of that you ate the tree, here's what the consequences are going to be. Because I think if we just deal with the trailer, I think we miss a lot of what actually happens in this particular dialogue. Now, I humbly submit it to you as here's what I think is a better picture of the interactions of what are going on here because there's just too many, to me, almost embarrassing questions and things that we can't reconcile that I think you can't figure out in the trailer, but you can see in the movie. So what does that tell us? Well, it may not solve all our problems in terms of equality and hierarchy and who has authority over what, but it does tell us that the serpent didn't make Eve do anything. What the serpent did is he placed conflicting ideas in her head when she, in turn, had to resolve in her own mind. By the way, if we don't understand this today, this is one of the greatest problems and where we're vulnerable, is we have God's command and then we have all kinds of people doing commentary on God's word, telling it what it means, and it can be as off It doesn't have to be radically off tremendously, but it forces, it put Eve in a position where she had to try to reconcile it and come up with her own solution. And if it's true that God commanded Adam directly and he was responsible to command her, that may have worked against her in trying to figure this out because it's like, well, I guess it's true. I actually didn't hear this from God's lips directly. Eve came up with a new paradigm or truth between God's command, the serpent's commentary, and their own convictions. You can see what they are. She knows that this tree is good for food. I don't think she's making it up. I think she did her homework and she found that the animals were eating fruit off the tree. Can I prove that? Of course I can't. But other than eating it herself and not dying, I don't know how you make that determination other than you've seen something eat that and they're okay. And I think for Adam, that becomes the most persuasive element of this other than her coming to him and saying, whatever, if you love me, I think you'll do this for me. Don't leave me hanging out here. 
And all of a sudden we have this problem where Eve intentionally and shrewdly deceived Adam to eat the fruit. I don't think he just ate whatever she handed to her without any questions. But Eve ends up abandoning her role as Adam's helper for the mission that God had called them to to get him to do what she thought was right. I mean, if, isn't that all of our struggles these days? We read God's word, we want to write our own commentary on it to fit what we want to do, and then we try to persuade other people to accommodate that. That's why Paul writes to Timothy, it's like, hey, teachers are going to be judged more strictly because if they start writing commentary that doesn't really support and affirm what God teaches, we could be leading people down some pathway that's not true. And if that doesn't get the attention of teachers and pastors and people who have to teach, then don't teach because that's a sobering reality. And Eve's deception was not just about disobeying God's command, but she intentionally undermined Adam's responsibility to obey God as well. Now, if you think this is good, wait till we jump into the condemnations after this. And so Eve clearly abandoned her role of being Adam's helper and didn't stay in tune with the role that God wanted her to do. Does that mean she undermined his authority? Well, it's, it's not that crystal clear in terms of where the text is at. We don't know it. I do think we know that God had prepped and did on-the-job training for Adam to take responsibilities, both for the mission and towards Eve. If you look at that as going, well, she undermined his authority, well, you'll work through it, but that's what we have to do. Can I say this as an applicational point? Every believer ought to be a ferocious student of the Word of God. Because what ultimately matters is what God says. And frankly, I'm going to say it again. Just because I'm up here preaching doesn't mean you ought to swallow everything I say as this is what you've got to do. This is commentary on what I believe the truth of the Scripture is, but that's why we need to be students of it. To keep examining and keep evaluating. But more than anything else, we need to do that not to prove someone else is wrong, but to live according to the truth of God's word. And, and Eve shows the power of her influence over Adam because she not only convinced herself of a new truth, but she had the power to derail her husband on that too. Now, I think it can go both ways. Don't tell me, I'm not going to try to suggest this is just a woman's. I might change my mind when we get to chapter 3, but anyway, that's a whole different issue. But folks, I, I'm, from this point on, this goes from bad to terrible. And we're living in a world now where we can't just recover what they had in the garden. But it also raises the question, what does equality really look like? Because apparently it wasn't locked in like they were robots. That Eve had the, the, the possibility of thinking and struggling and trying to figure all this stuff out. And she came to her own conclusions. And this is why I think she didn't consult Adam or even go back and talk to God because she just went from her conclusions and went straight to Adam, and I don't see God in that picture, in that conversation, anywhere in between it. Are you a student of God's word? 
Do you know how to study the Bible? I mean, we've got to be careful because we've got lots of commentators and devotionals and, I, and podcasts and everyone else telling us what it means. It's their commentary, but do you know his word and are you committed to being obedient to it? Father, we thank you.